morning. All right, y'all ready? Malachi. Let's do it. All right, so I know some of you probably don't know where that is in your Bible. That's totally fine. You have a thing called a table of contents. Seriously, open up to the table of contents and you'll find that the book of Malachi is one of those really tiny books. It's very small. Um, it's probably going to only occupy maybe three, maybe four pages. Unless you have a study Bible, then it might be like 20 you know, with the notes and everything. It's at the very end of the first section of your Bible. Now, first section, what am I talking about? What's the first section? Old Testament. Very good. And if there's an Old Testament, then we can presume that there is a what Testament? New Testament. Old versus new. So we studied Matthew, and that took about a year and a half. And we emphasized how Matthew was placed strategically in the biblical narrative to transition us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Malachi has a similar role. It's there to serve as the end, as the, the final scene, so to speak, of the Old Testament story. Now, I know I've got some uh, movie fans in the room, and there's one thing you can guarantee will happen if you go watch a Marvel movie. The movie ends, and the credit starts to roll, and then you can look across the movie theater, and you know who's a Marvel movie fan and who is not based on what happens when the credits start to roll. Now, how do you know? Because the people who actually watch these movies, for real, perfectly still, you know this movie's not over. There's still a post-credit scene. Everybody that gets up, you're like, oh, they don't know what's going on. They didn't really watch this movie. All right, there's a sense, okay, you know, where, you know, there's a movie, right? The movie's important. The narrative of the movie's important, but you've got to know what happens in that post-credit scene because that post-credit scene sets up what's coming next. Now, I know who my Marvel fan people are in the room because they're going, mm, that's right, that's right. And, you know, there's another one coming out, and I'm not counting the days, but it might be in two weekends. But anyway, so, you know, and there'll be a post-credit scene in that one too. All right, so here's, I'll say all that to say, there's a sense in which, in that same sort of fashion, Malachi is that post-credit scene. The narrative has happened. The, the story of the Old Testament is complete. The, the drama has unfolded, but clearly something's undone. There's an incompleteness to the story of the Old Testament. If you read the story of the Old Testament, of course, it, it takes a while. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying the, the big picture story of the Old Testament, you get to the end and you feel like something else must be coming. There's another piece of the story. And, and Malachi's narrative, Malachi's story, Malachi's oracle is the word we're going to use, is that post-credit scene that sets up what's coming and gives a little bit of commentary on what's already happened. So as we dive in, let's go ahead and just read the first verse. I'm going to unpack the history of what's going on with Malachi. I've given you enough time. I hope you've found it by now. If nothing else, go to Matthew and then back up a couple of pages, and you will find Malachi. So it says, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. All right, a lot's going on in this verse. So let's just unpack the historical background, which we emphasize to everyone when we study a book because we want to read the Bible the way it's intended to be read, not put our meaning into it, but read it the meaning it was supposed to have given to us. So let's unpack what's going on. So number one, it says the oracle 
the oracle. Now, if you have a different translation, you may see a completely different word that seems to have nothing to do with the word oracle. Does anybody have a translation that says burden? All right, the word burden. In the Hebrew, same word. Same word refers to both. The idea is God has given a message to this guy that's almost like a burden to him. Have you ever felt like you just, there was something you had to do? Some conversation you had to have with someone. It almost feels like that thing you need to say becomes a burden to you. Here's what we're getting at. The message Malachi is going to share, by and large, is not a positive one. If God gave you a positive message, hey, go share this positive message with the world, how would you feel? Unless you're Jonah. Oh, yeah, this is great. I'll go share a positive message. When God says, I want you to go tell my people how horrible and wicked they are and how I'm going to judge and punish them, how might you feel about that message? That's an oracle, all right? That's this kind of prophecy. This is a, a word from the Lord. It's not Malachi's word. Maybe there's an apprehension even to sharing it. Man, that's a hard word to say. So Malachi has been given this message from the Lord. And now remember, every time in the Old Testament, when you see Lord, all capital letters, but small, what does that mean that word is? Yahweh. This is God's name. It's not the word Lord. It is actually the word for Yahweh, God's name. So this message comes from God, the covenant Lord, to Israel by Malachi. Now, so if you've been here on Wednesday nights, And if you feel like I'm plugging Wednesday nights a lot, it's maybe because I want you to come on Wednesday nights. But we've been studying the Old Testament, and those who have been following the study may know that it's weird that the word Israel appeared in this passage. So let me just unpack that for a moment. God's people in the Old Testament, when we first meet them, are called not Israel, but Hebrews. Oh, very good. They're called Hebrews. They're wandering around. They weren't the only Hebrew people, but they get the designation, kind of capital H, Hebrews. They're the Hebrew people. Well, that's the first time we're in Israel. Then they have to do that whole exiled, I mean, uh, exodus from Egypt. Then they come back into the land, and that's when they start to adopt the name of one of the patriarchs, which is Israel. They go by the name Israel for a time. And then after they sin, God destroys them, they get sent into exile, and they come back, rather than being called Israelites, they get a new name, do you know? Jews. Why are they called Jews? Because primarily the surviving tribe was the tribe of Judah, and so the shortened form of saying you're a Judite is saying you're a Jew, and of course that name grows to refer to the Benjamites who survived, as well as the Levites. So it's interesting that set in that period, that's when Malachi was written, after they've come back, after they've developed a lot of new cultural identity, they're referred to as Jews rather than Israelites, Malachi references them as not Jews, but what? Israelites. He's got a point. There's a reason for why this is happening, and we'll get into that a little more as we go. So let's get to verse 2. And you'll see this is kind of how the setup of Malachi is going to be. I have loved you, says the Lord. Who's speaking? God. God himself is speaking. Virtually all of Malachi is first person. God speaking to his people. I have loved you. Now, he's not emphasizing that he doesn't anymore. This is not a, I used to love you. He's saying, I've been loving you. For a long time now, 
I have loved you faithfully. I have loved you well. I've been a good God. I have loved you. That's his statement. I have loved you. Now, have you ever been told that God loved you? Now, we hear that. Now, have you ever been in seasons of your life where someone says God loves you and you feel, doesn't feel like he does? That's the setting of the book of Malachi. God says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Have you asked that question to God before? You say you love me. I look at my life. That's not what I see. Or we'll think about the Israelites and their setting. So let's back up. Malachi is written in the 400s. Let's back up to three centuries before. So we get into that era. Things are going all right in Israel, except they've adopted a new religion. And rather than worshiping Yahweh, the Lord, they're worshiping different types of idols, different idols from the Canaanites from all over, anywhere they could find some abhorrent version of religion. That was the version they were going to worship. God promised that if they kept following that path, he would destroy them. Well, if you've read your Old Testament, you know what happens. Do they repent? No, they do not. And they keep worshiping idols. And God sends the Assyrians to come conquer his people. Absolutely decimates them. The southern kingdom, because by that point they had split into a north and south, kind of like we had a north and south for a very short period of time in this country. Civil war ended. They just stayed separate for the rest of their history until the time we're in now. And so the southern kingdom sees the northern kingdom get destroyed, and they decide maybe repentance isn't such a bad idea. So they repent, but it doesn't last. And then God sends the Babylonians to destroy even the southern kingdom and send them into exile. Now, does that sound like a happy thing to do? Of course not. So many people died. Homes were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The wall around Jerusalem was destroyed. And the few survivors get taken back to another place where they have to live in subjugation. They stay there for almost a whole century. Now, would you think they prospered during that time? No, they're the bottom of society. There may be some individuals who worked their way up in the Babylonian government. We could think of Daniel as one very small fraction of the population. But for the most part, these people are in a horrible state economically, socially. They're oppressed. And then finally, they get to go home almost a century later and rebuild their temple. And they get there and they rebuild the temple and they had remembered this beautiful vision of the temple that Solomon had built. Yet when they rebuild this new temple, they look at it and go, man, it's just not what it used to be. You ever longed for the golden age before? It's kind of the same thing. They rebuild the temple. The glory of the Lord doesn't even descend down and fill it like it did the first time. It's just this depressing structure. And they can't even build it without opposition because it's not just them living in the land now. They're there. They're sharing it with these other people groups who are fighting them and working against them to build this land. They don't really have freedom. They have a little bit of government approval to build the temple and then that gets removed and they get it back again and they're constantly fighting for their freedom to worship and for their freedom to even have a temple to build a wall. Things are going very poorly at this point for Israel. They don't have any economic stability. They're still technically oppressed. They're subjugated to the Persian Empire. Spiritually, things are going very poor. They're starving to death. This is not the golden age of Israel's history. 
And so God says, I have loved you. Faithfully is the implication. And Israel responds back and says, how could you say you have loved us? Look at where we are. Look at how depressing our life is. Where have you been? What is going on? There is no way you could say that you have loved us when they're looking at their circumstances. I think we can relate. I think we've had those times, those moments where we hear that statement, God loves you, and we look at life and say, where's it at? All right, I, I, I don't see it. All right, so God's going to answer the question. He's not going to give Israel the opportunity to answer it for itself because um, Israel's theology is never as good as God's, and so he's going to answer the question for them. This is how he does it. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, this is going way back in Old Testament history. So we're leaving Malachi. And what book of the Bible do we have to go to for this story? Genesis, all the way to the beginning. This is the very first book of the Bible. So quick rehash of who these characters are. You remember Abraham? Abraham was called by God. Instead of serving the many gods of Persia, he was to serve the one true God, Yahweh, and he's promised, I'm going to give you this land. Later, that's the land of Israel. But at this point in the narrative, it's not his land yet. He's a Hebrew, meaning he's a wanderer. But he settles for a short time in this land of Canaan. And God promises to give him a son. Now, that's a long story. It takes a while for that to happen. But who is that son? What's his name? Isaac. So Isaac is born. He is the one through whom the covenant, I'm going to give you this land, make you a great people, a great nation. It follows through Isaac not Abraham's other children. Can you name one of the others? One before? Ishmael. It's not through Ishmael. Only through Isaac. Then Isaac falls in love, gets married, and she, and sorry, he, well, she gives, okay, it's so confusing. He has a baby, but you know what I mean, right? His wife, Rebecca, has twins, okay? And who are those twins? Jacob and Esau, Okay. You probably, if you've grown up in church or read the Old Testament much, very popular stories about these two stealing birthrights and inheritance and all of that kind of stuff. So that's who we're talking about, Jacob versus Esau. Now, which of the two does the covenant promise fall on? Jacob. It's Jacob and all of his descendants. So before that, Abraham had many children, but it was only through Isaac. Isaac had two, but it was only through Jacob. But then Jacob, he has 12 sons, and they're known as the 12 what of Israel? 12 tribes, right? So it's his whole family. He gets renamed Israel later. It's that guy we're talking about. So you have twin brothers. One is Jacob. One is Esau. So here's how God answers the question. How have you loved us? And so God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Okay, now, we always get frustrated and maybe a little upset when we see the word hate, and the subject of the sentence is God, right? God hates you. That's the mess. When we see that message, we think of a particular sort of protest that goes on from a particular church that none of us, you know, want to uh, endorse or claim, yet there's lingo in Scripture to imply that God has this capacity to hate. So he says, I've loved Jacob on the one hand, 
And on the other end, Esau I have hated. Now, in this case, loved and hated, it has more to do with choice. He's chosen one and not chosen the other. God certainly does good things for Esau and his descendants throughout the biblical narrative, and you can read that, but he does something unique and special with Jacob, with Israel. Now, think about this. We get frustrated about the idea of selective love. So I'll just ask you a general question. Does God love everyone the same? No. Absolutely not. All right, think about this. this. This is absolutely true, and if you thought about it, you wouldn't question it at all. So you're in a married relationship, right? One husband, one man, and the husband says, baby, I love you. In the same way I love everybody else, but I love you too. How's she feel? All right, the, the chuckles, uh, you, you get it, right? There's a sense in which love is only love if it's exclusive, okay? That's fundamental to what God is saying in the Old Testament. God's people say, how have you loved us? And he says, first and foremost, I picked you. I chose to do my work through you. I chose to make my covenant faithful promise to you, to your descendants, not everyone else. I'm doing a special work and just you, oh Israel, you and you alone, I'm doing something special. To how many people in the Old Testament did God make covenant promises? Just one. Only this one group of people. I've loved you in this specific, selective sort of way. And he says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. All right, let's pause on that. So he says, I've loved you, Jacob, but Esau, I hated him and I've laid him waste. But who is he also laid waste? He laid waste to Israel as well. Well, does that mean God's really just using semantics here and he, he treats them both the same way? The answer is no. Why did he lay waste to Israel? To correct them. He loved them enough to train them through this experience. But why is he pouring out judgment on Esau? Because they're wicked and evil. It's a different sort of thing. Punishment and discipline are very distinct. And furthermore, what did Israel do to deserve getting restored in the first place, they sinned, God destroyed them. He could have left them right there. But what did he do instead? He brought them back home, setting up his good purposes through them. So here's how the question is answered. If you want to fill this out in your outline, God has manifested his love to Israel in blessing. That's the original choice. So I'm going to bless you and not everyone else. I'm going to do a special work in you. He's also loved them in judgment. That's why he's doing a work to correct them. He's chastising them. So he's loved them in blessing, judgment, and ultimately in grace. By selecting them, restoring them, and doing a good work through them. That's not where the story ends. So, verse 4. If Edom says, now Edom is the name of the people who are descendants of Esau. So if you're not connecting those dots, those are the same people. So Jacob represents Israel. Esau represents Edom. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. So Israel was destroyed. 
they're rebuilding. Edom was also destroyed, and they're saying, we're going to rebuild. We're going to do the same thing Israel did. What's the Lord of hosts say? They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Well, that's a great heritage. So on the one hand, God is showing covenant faithfulness. I will love you in spite of it all. On the other hand, I'm going to destroy you and keep destroying you and destroy you again and pour out my wrath. You see how he's defining love here? There's a sense in which love can only be defined selectively. That's how God is doing it. He's poured out a special love on his Old Testament people and not on everyone else. In this case, not on the descendants of Esau. All right, so let's fill in the next point in the outline. God will manifest his love through judgment of the world. You see what I'm saying? In the end, when God pours out his judgment on those who are not his people, that is actually an act of his love towards his people because it emphasizes the selectiveness. All right, so when a man doesn't have relations with any other woman, but only has them with his wife, that's part of love, right? It's a selectiveness. And take it a step further, God is not just not doing it with everyone else. He's pouring out indignation on everyone else, but pouring out grace on his beloved. So this is what Malachi is emphasizing. So think about what Malachi is telling his people. They're in destitution. They're broken. They're spiritually messed up in a plethora of ways. We'll get into all of that as we work through Malachi. And Malachi's first message is, in spite of everything you think you see and understand, know that I love you, says the Lord. What's the implication? I'm doing something. I've got a plan unfolding. Now, we have the New Testament perspective, right? We know how the book ends. There's a prophet coming. Elijah is going to return and prepare the way of the Lord himself. God in the flesh is going to come and restore his people to bring salvation, to do the greatest work of love that has ever been manifested and ever will be. This is what is coming. This is the word he's making to them. But let's see the last verse. See how it comes together. Your eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is a big deal in the Old Testament. We have a slightly different understanding of God culturally than the default culture had 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. They thought of gods as deities, as being localized. So if you were in one country... You needed to honor that God while you were in that country. But if you left that country, what could that God do to you? There were local deities, right? That's why you had to go to a temple to worship that God. If you wanted to worship a Greek God, where did you have to go? To Greece. You had to get to one of those temples and worship that God there. But what's God trying to show his people? He's not the God of the land of Israel. Where is God God? Every single place. It's interesting he ends it this way. So let's fill in the last point. We'll make sense of it. God is great beyond the reaches 
of the church. So do you ever watch the news and feel like things are just falling to pieces? Feel like maybe we're on the losing team. Maybe you know better, but that's your feeling. Secularism is on the rise. The culture is changing, especially in America, post-Christian sort of worldview. We feel like we, we used to have some cultural grounding, some, some legroom, some places to stand firm, and now that corner is getting smaller, and we feel like, man, we're, we're losing our traction. We're, we're losing our place. We're losing our advantage. We're losing our power and influence in society. But here's the key that we've got to make sure we never forget. Nothing has changed from God's perspective. No matter how destitute Israel felt, no matter how small they felt, no matter how poor they felt, Malachi's burden was to make sure they knew that God's sovereign hand is ever-present in everything that's going on. And he's got some plan that included this suffering. He's got a plan, however, that includes a glory that is to be revealed that makes all of this suffering worth it. So great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So here's the takeaway for this morning. When we look at the culture that is around us, maybe you don't have to look that far out. Maybe you can just look at the circumstances you inhabit every single day. And you feel the strain and the tension and the suffering. You feel the overwhelmingness of the brokenness of culture, of the world bearing down on you. Know that God is great, not just here on a Sunday morning when we sing a song or read a scripture, but in every single circumstance. And that his plan is working out Perfectly. God has no plan B's. Plan A is what is happening. And that's what Malachi is about. As we dive in, we're going to see it's not all positive. There's a lot of negative. But God, through it all, is great beyond the borders of this church.